Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Charlotte Bond. We talk about unequal societies a lot on this show about privilege and power, and who is in a position to use it. We wanted to take a critical look at a subgenre that maybe best reflects the democratic, bureaucratic society that many of us experience every day. Some of our favourite books fall under the umbrella of political fantasy, as it's come to be called. These are the stories set in the halls of power, in front of and behind the throne, in offices and secret rooms. It might not be as obvious as a marching battalion, say, or a bolt of magical lightning, but it is often more potent. Joining us tonight is Catherine Addison, whose much-loved novel, The Goblin Emperor, is, we feel, political fantasy at its best. And with a sequel, The Witness for the Dead, coming out, we wanted to talk to Catherine about the ideas behind both novels and the place of politics in fantasy. Thanks so much for joining us, Catherine. Uh, Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Catherine Addison. I've written, let's see, several books, but the most recent is uh, The Witness for the Dead, which is coming out in June. And before that was The Angel of the Crows, which came out last year. Those are the two most recent things I've written. Brilliant. Because we're going to be mostly talking about your uh, new Witness for the Dead book, um, mm-hmm. we'd, we'd jump right in and start dissecting what we think the term political fantasy actually is. I mean, it does seem to have become a subgenre uh, of fantasy in its own right. Like We often refer to it as you know, political fantasy. There's military fantasy, epic fantasy, high fantasy. But what do we mean by the term political? I mean, what does that mean to you? I mean, specifically for me, politics is always about power. So it's about power dynamics in a government would be politics. There are other kinds, of of course, of power dynamics that one can be caught in, but the political ones are relatively low-hanging in terms of everyone is familiar with them and familiar with what politics looks like. When I think about political fantasy, I'm thinking of Seth Dickinson's The Traitor, a bit of Shelley P. Chan's She Who Became the Sun that's coming out next month. These kinds of books, I feel, are particularly something like The Traitor. It isn't, I, I would hesitate to describe it, you know, as something like epic fantasy, because it is, there is a, there's a certain nuance to it. There's a certain kind of insularity, like it, it focuses on the kind of minutiae of of power wrangling between sets of people in a way that, you know, obviously we see power played out in on grand scales in, in like epic fantasy, but there's something about political fantasy that, I mean, we there are these books that we call this, this term for a reason. I mean, what do you think sets that type of book apart from general fantasy, say, you know, the type that we're used to in the 70s and 80s with, you know, popularised by Tolkien, for example? I'd also like to dive in and ask if you think there's any difference between political and military fantasy, because um, we mentioned that earlier, and it's 
it's quite a lot when you talk about power earlier on and a lot of power in fantasy is often who controls the biggest army. So, you know, do you think, as well as Lucy's question, I just wanted to pop in a little one there about whether or not you thought there was any difference to military fantasy. I think that Tolkien's work actually encompasses a lot of different kinds of fantasy that we've, we've since sort of separated out and said, well, this is you know, quest fantasy and this is political fantasy and, you know, all of these different things and he was doing all of them. But I think that a political fantasy is one particularly that, that is focused in on, on the halls of power of negotiations between and within governments also military fantasy, Tolkien does them all. But military war is diplomacy conducted by other methods. Somebody said that, and I don't remember who, but I think that military military fiction in general is going to be fiction about armies or navies. And the sort of very blunt exchanges of power that you have with literal knights on literal horses charging each other or a frigate broadsiding another frigate. The, the power there is very material and very um, sort of non-symbolic. Whereas a lot of the power in books that are political fantasy, it's much more about sort of things that we agree on as power or are negotiating as power. Um, I mean, that's one of the things to mention my own book, but to mention the Goblin Emperor, one of the things that's going on there is the question of how much of Maya's power is symbolic. How much does he actually have? What can he himself actually do? And his discovery that really, for all the grandeur and symbolism of it, an emperor doesn't have a lot of power. He's, he's hemmed in on all sides by people who know what he should be doing. And sometimes it can be very difficult for him to say, no, I don't want to do that, which he does do a couple of times. And I was writing specifically, I wanted specifically to write something that was not a quest fantasy and that was not a military fantasy. It took me a lot of work to actually get a whole novel that, that takes place in one place. Where once he gets to the, once he gets to the palace, he doesn't leave it, which is very contrary to the leanings of a lot of fantasy, which is here we have a map and we must visit every um, every country on the map. Diana Wynne-Jones talks about that in the, the Tough Guide to Fantasyland. You must collect your passport stamps from all countries. I think I remember that. <laughs> that was a lovely idea. Yes. Political fantasy is the fantasy that you get if you say, well, I don't want to go on a quest and I don't want to go, I don't want to go fight a war, what do you have left to write about? And I mean, that can be answered in, in dozens of different ways. Ellen Kushner's Swords Point is not quite a political fantasy because it's about the people in the city and not the people who are in control. But it's definitely fantasy that is interested in staying in one place, talking about things on a much smaller scale. I was interested what you said about a smaller scale there, because one of the things that I thought about is that you get political fantasy and military fantasy, blah, blah, blah. And I suppose you possibly get political sci-fi. But as a horror writer, I can honestly say I've never really seen political horror. <laughs> and you don't tend to get <laughs> political romances. And I wondered why it was that 
with sci-fi being sort of a little baby child on the side, why do we think that political fantasy is such a big subgenre compared to other genres, especially speculative fiction? I mean, is it the large scale nature of a secondary world that allows you to imagine a huge political atmosphere or is it or does the hugeness of it get in the way when you're trying to really break down the minutiae like you did in the Goblin Emperor with all the little tasks and the bureaucracy and things like that? So I wondered what you thought about that and fancy against other speculative genres. Well, I could make a joke about America and political horror. <laughs> you could. We could make one about Britain and political horror, to be honest. As well. <laughs> well, one of the things that makes fantasy and science fiction different from other kinds of genres is that you can put any kind of story you want into them. Uh, you can't do that with horror. You horror has specific ways that it is that the story is going to go. You can't do it with mysteries because mysteries have a certain set of things that are going to happen. But, I mean, you can put a mystery into a science fiction story or a mystery into a fantasy story, but you can't really put other things into a mystery. So I think that science fiction and fantasy in particular offer really almost endless opportunity because you can tell any kind of story you want to so that you can have in you know both kinds or not both all kinds of fantasy are is still recognizably you can still say yes these belong together by virtue of something that isn't their plot and the same thing with science fiction i wanted to pick up on something you actually just were just beginning to touch on it about you know the idea of politics equals power struggles and power wrangling. And you mentioned that Maya, your main character in The Goblin Emperor, he gets to the palace and realises, you know, even though he's the emperor, what does that mean? How much power does he even have? Even though, you know, people are genuflecting all over the place, you know, that he's referred to as the, the highest kind of formal language in the land. And then he realises to his his horror that actually he's he's kind of in a prison is wielding political power the same as wielding actual power because i feel like this is his his conundrum that he gets to this place and thinks that he's walking in the halls of power he's been given the highest office in the land um but you as you were you're beginning to talk about he realizes that there is a certain powerlessness in his situation yeah that was that was something that was really interesting to explore in writing the story is just put it, putting my poor, my poor beleaguered protagonist down in the middle of this vast palace with armies of servants on every side and have him trying to figure out, well, what can I do? What can't I do? Who says no to the emperor? And as it turns out, a lot of people say no to the emperor. So I think that in terms of physical sort of literal power, Maya has almost none, except that he has his bodyguards who were a, a defensive kind of power, which apparently to be the emperor of the Elflands you need. But you know, he doesn't have the power to choose who he's going to marry for himself. He doesn't have the power to choose to take a day off. In those terms, he probably had more, not power, but autonomy when he was living out in the marshes in the middle of nowhere with his terrible cousin, but at that point he had, he, he could make decisions for himself, even if they were very limited decisions. And as the emperor, he can make decisions for 
hundreds of thousands of other people, but can make very, very few for himself. An irony that I hadn't entirely anticipated going in. One of the things I loved about the Goblin Emperor is how Maya, like you said, has this, to quote Disney, huge cosmic power. And yet he is almost just unbelievably sidelined by it all. And he's just got no power at all. And it kind of put me in mind of when you write magic rules for a fantasy world. Mm. And it's a case of if someone's got huge cosmic power, you have to be able to limit it to make the story tick along nicely and you can't just have someone going well i'll use fireball and i'll do this and i'll do that and i wondered if you came across the same thing with the goblin emperor because although maya doesn't actually you know he doesn't wield his power viciously he does have the power to do an awful lot so was making him kind of a a reticent character part of how you balanced out the fact that he has huge cosmic power or were there other things that you kind of worked in i know you kind of said it just kind of came up was there something you planned in advance or did it did it just come in as you were writing when i started writing that book i knew that what i wanted to do was write about that there's a trope in epic fantasy in particular the scullery boy who turns out to be the king and in general those stories are all about how the scullery boy becomes the king but not about what it's like for him to be the king afterwards And I was much more interested in saying, well, okay, what happens if you're a teenage boy and you have no experience of power and negotiation and and politics and the formal manners of the court and and dancing? Oh, dear God, the dancing. What happens if if, if you get placed in the middle of the halls of power, literally? You know, what is that really like? What not what it what you imagine it would be like when you were a scullery boy washing dishes, but what is it really like to be, to become an emperor with no training? So that was, I started from was just here is, here is a character who does not have the, who doesn't have any of the experience he needs in order to, to perform this job. And he's being told to perform the job anyway. So, and so there was a lot of, it took, some doing to make that a survivable scenario, for one thing. Um, there are lots of boy emperors in the history of the Elflands, and they don't live to see 18. So, you know, there, I had to stack the deck very carefully, sort of both to make it possible for him to survive and succeed, but on the other hand, not to make it too easy, not to let him, not to give him the get out of jail free card or the vast and cosmic powers that will enable him to solve every problem he's given, which is not how, not how power works in these books anyway. I know that Lucy's mentioned various other um, epic fantasies which have very strong political sides to them. I'm afraid I'm not a huge fan of political fantasy, but I do love the George R. R. Martin stuff, for example. And I tend to find that the political stuff I enjoy is very sort of wide ranging. I like the big battles. I like all that kind of, you know, wrangling and the families against each other. But one thing that I really loved about the Goblin Emperor was, as I said before, the minutiae of it all. And the fact that you had details of the the grievances that came before him and the land disputes and stuff like that. So I'm kind of wondering, where did you get such a level of information to you know think up okay well today actually he's going to have breakfast and then he's going to have a petition and it's going to be about this and then he's going to after lunch he's going to have this and he's going to you know be talking about this and the council is going to be dealing with these things and where it just 
it was mind boggling how you got all this information. And I wondered if you drew on normal source, like real life sources, or if you just got to a bit and went, you know, I'll make a cup of tea and I'll have a think about what kind of things people would say to an emperor. Well, the, there are sort of two ways to answer that. One of them is to say, I made everything up as I went along. And it was sort of a matter of looking at Maya's day and thinking, well, okay, what would people say? What would people bring before the emperor? What kinds of things would the, the emperor see? Um, but I should also say that I was thinking a great deal about um, Versailles and the court of Louis XIV, l'état c'est moi, and drawing on the history I've done. My PhD is in Renaissance drama. So I know, or did know, a fair amount about um, the Tudor and Stuart dynasty. Maya was actually based partly on Queen Elizabeth because when she got the throne, she was living in house arrest in a manor in the country, wondering every day whether his, her sister was going to decide that today was the day Elizabeth needed to die. So Maya could have had it worse. I mean, she was an amazing PR person and knew how to use what would seem to be disadvantages to use them in her favor. And I could, in fact, derail myself completely into talking about Elizabeth I. But my point is that I had some familiarity with the politics and the, the machinery of government from learning about the Tudors and the Stuarts, which I then just sort of applied. I thought of the, I wrote things down when I thought of them. <laughs> um, and in general, it, in general, it was a matter of just chasing down the details, all the details that you would normally skip over because your plot isn't about them are turned out in this book to be the plot. Ah, you see, now this, that, it just brings me perfectly onto something that I wanted to, to discuss, which is the idea of like battles and, and drama and tension in these political fantasies are more often fought with words than swords. They're often, you know, around a table or in front of a throne. Um, but they're the kinds of things you just talked about. And Charlotte talked about when she, she was saying about, oh, you know, Maya's day, ha all of the things, the petitions that are brought before him. This is the kind of stuff that, and, and this, and I think this is your your talent as a writer is that you've managed to make it really engaging and interesting. And I wanted to to be with him in those boring council meetings because they are boring, and he finds them boring. I mean, that is a, it's a gift to be able to bring tension out of such a kind of, in a way, domestic situation in such a you know, and I think that's. But these are the kinds of, of, in a way, battles, yeah, that we see today in politics, that they take place behind closed doors and they go on for hours and hours and hours. Why are we drawn to that kind of level of machination? Like, what, what, Why is it so interesting to read about these kinds of discourses when they're not very, very often they're not glamorous or, or sexy and they're not, you know, um, sensationalised? That's a good question. I think that part of what makes it interesting is that we have, well, part of what makes it interesting is that we can skip the boring bits. You know, I don't, ha I don't transcribe hour after hour after hour of the Corajas meeting 
while my poor emperor is trying not to fall asleep. I can summarize or I can skip from one bit to another. We don't have to, it's not like watching C-SPAN or the interminable proceedings in the House or the Senate where you just sit there and you wait 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 and you wait. So I do have, as the author, I have advantages of being able to say, well, we don't need to experience all of these hours. We can experience sort of the beginning of the first hour and maybe one piece here in the middle, and then we can talk about what happened after the, after the meeting. I can pick and choose, in other words, which is the thing you can't do with real life politics. I was really fascinated by the fact you said that you were inspired by the Tudors and in particular Queen Elizabeth. Uh, I don't get to talk about history much on this podcast because it's not really speculative fiction, but I am such a huge historical fan and I love the Tudors and I'm so pleased my daughter's currently doing it in school and she's coming back and we're talking about it. It's fantastic. And I've often wondered why it is that people are so fascinated by the Tudor age. Because like you said, particularly with Queen Elizabeth, there was a lot of sort of manoeuvring and lots of words. And I often wonder if it's because it was a time when there was an awful lot of political upheaval and political change. And I kind of get the feeling that that's what's necessary in political fantasy as well. You couldn't just have an emperor coming along and fighting a few battles. It's got to be something truly dramatic and earth-shattering, a bit like my the half-goblin becoming an emperor. Do you think that it's it's necessary then to have to have a political fantasy that deals with the time of upheaval, or do you think you could just have one where it is just the minutiae of, of every day? That would be a really interesting challenge to try to write a, a political fantasy in which nothing very much happens. And that was something when I was writing The Goblin Emperor and when it was going through production, I was horribly worried about because nothing happens in this whole book. Nothing happens. I was very worried that people would find it boring and mercifully know the, the ways in which nothing happens were interesting enough to make a book out of. But one reason that I have said and will say and continue to say that The Goblin Emperor is a standalone novel is that I don't think I could sustain that trick for very much longer than I did. Because it is hard to think of interesting things to have happen. (laughs) When you say it's hard to think of interesting things keeping happening, I suppose, again, it's coming back to this idea of the Tudors. And we are so fascinated with the Henry VIII because he had the big break from Rome. And then what you've got is the fallout of that, really, haven't you? I mean, almost, you've got sort of sequels in the case of Mary and, and Elizabeth. And I guess if you were going to write that with a political fantasy, then you would perhaps have to abandon Maya and do your next book with his successor and so on and just seeing how it changes. Right. Yeah, I, I really don't know if it would be possible to write an engaging political fantasy about the middle three years of a long and uneventful reign? Or would you end up writing, would it, would it end up being about different things? Because if you, if your politics is all settled and normal, then you can write about the love affairs between in the court, um, dangerous liaisons kind of deal. You look elsewhere, I guess, for conflict and tension and interest. Some people when talking about how you write a book, say, well, you have to have conflict, that no, there's nothing without conflict. And I don't think that's true. But I think that it is much easier to write a book that 
readers find engaging if you do have some relatively forthright amount of conflict in it. Mm. I mean, I would argue that the conflict in your book comes from Maya not receiving the formal education and training he required for becoming emperor and being thrust into that situation really without very much warning at all and finding himself completely adrift with like no allies. Um, And I mean, that's it might might be defined as a different kind of conflict, but I feel like the conflict between him and his internal landscape and the external landscape he finds himself in, um, which presents one face, i.e. the face of power, you are the most powerful person in the realm, but it delivers a completely different truth. Is that That is, I think, the central conflict of the Goblin Emperor and what kept me reading, because we're all Maya in a way. We all find ourselves adrift in difficult situations in our lives. And I feel like he's very easy to empathise with. Yeah, it was not difficult to imagine how he felt in, in sort of looking at, okay... This poor child has just become the emperor. You know, what are the things that happens to him and how does he feel about them? And it was always very easy to figure out how Maya felt about things because I could imagine it for myself. Any situation in which one feels out of one's depth. Yeah, that feeling is universal, I think. Unusual in the point that at the beginning of The Goblin Emperor, we have this incredible introduction to the world in the, you know, at the point of language, like entry, entry level kind of language. And I just thought that's so unusual. You don't see that in very many, uh, in very many fantasy books that nobody takes time to think about the effects of language, um, you know, on a, you know, on somebody's day-to-day existence. So I wanted just to have, uh, just to ask you about about the language and why you decided to um, look at language almost as a weapon, um, it's something Maya feels very attacked by yeah. by language. <laughs> yes, partly it was um, the chance to make up a language, and you know to have all of, to, to invent to, to invent words, um, which was very exciting and endlessly engrossing for me, and got pared down quite a bit to get into the book. But partly, I guess, and to go back to the tutors. It does come from from reading Shakespeare, where language is, you know, it is a weapon, it is an instrument of seduction, it is anything you can imagine Shakespeare's characters doing. You imagine it because of the language they use to tell you what's going on. So it, in that sense, I think it was easy for me to consider language as something, as, a, as performance, that, that uh, everything that people say in the Goblin Emperor, almost, they are saying in pursuit of the performance of their duties or the performance of their goals or the performance of their obligations. You know, that, that's how I was, you know, how I felt about language at the point that I was writing the book was, was that it was something that you could use. There, there's an in excess song, um, which has got, I now got stuck in my head. Uh, words are weapons sharper than knives and that's kind of true for maya is that the words no one no one would dare touch him but they can still cut him with words i love the fact that you have to be our first guest who has managed to mix the tudors shakespeare's and in excess (laughs) one one answer (laughs) 
<laughs> I feel like this is a language is particularly relevant um, when you're talking about a society that has a lot of it operates on you know at a bureaucratic level like there are clerks beneath clerks beneath clerks but it, it goes on in a into a it kind of horror actually like I I really kind of hate the minutiae of bureaucracy because I I, I hate the the kind of the, the fact that you feel like you can never get to the crux of the matter because it's obscured under paperwork um and i really felt for maya like when he kind of finds himself in this situation where people are being in a way deliberately obstructive um but on loads of different levels you know it's the kind of first you know he he finds himself confronted by um the the echelons of power in the like administrative power so it's kind of learning who reports to whom and what's safe to say in front of what person. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then on top of that, there's this layer of, of language about how one can be addressed and the fact that people can readily insult him, you know, to his face without insulting him by using a particular type of language um, mm-hmm. that he, you know, to show him up to say that he doesn't have that same understanding. I think it's a particularly subtle kind of of power struggle we all have a different grasp um and a different ability with language um i'm not really sure where i'm going with this thought but i feel like it, it it just stood out to me as being you know something that we don't talk about that much in regards to to power mm. our society is at, at a point where where everything is reality tv where the performance is that there's not a performance which is very much not the way that power in particular was performed in centuries past. You know, the art of rhetoric was an art that could be taught for a reason. But I think that it's and something that is still taught and people are still using, but we've become very, um, not sly exactly, but... Underhanded? Underhanded or I, I think two-faced about it, where people use rhetoric while denying that they're using rhetoric. I found it fascinating that you mentioned reality TV there and it reminded me a little bit of Twitter and I was thinking of the fact that there's a couple of points where Meyer is asked to rule on something that his father had been ruling on and he goes well it's not written down and I can't be sure of what my father would say unless it's written down and I therefore Mm -hmm. if it's not written down I can have my own opinion on it and I'm not going to follow what he said and it was just it was a wonderful kind of twisted in a good way kind of logic and I felt it's so odds with our current social media where you put something on Twitter and it can be completely taken out of context and you can you know write something and regret it five minutes later and delete it and it was very much the opposite to what kind of Maya was living in and even when he was trying to show his emotions or even when he kind of cracked he was still really formal and I just wondered Mm -hmm. whether you had any kind of trouble mounting up the tension and the drama while still keeping this very careful construction of language. I mean, I almost kind of felt like Maya should have turned around at some point and just gone, oh, just fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) And I wondered if you had the urge or if there was a scene that was written that way and then deleted and you went, no, he can't do that. And you, you kind of toned it down. And I just wondered how you dealt with that formality of language and, you know, the bursting emotion that, you know, the characters are always feeling sometimes. Oh, Charlotte, you know, when he, when he drops the formal we, that's him saying fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but even so, it, it's it's just so refined compared to, you know, what we're used to as a society. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, that was one of the things that was really fun, actually, about writing these endless political machinations and and personal machinations was in charting out, okay, how how can you say this in, in the correct kind of language? How can you tell someone to fuck off without breaking formality? Because that is something that happens a couple of times where Maya actually manages to use the rules of the game to his advantage, which mostly he mostly because he hasn't been brought up to to play by these rules. Mostly he, he is not the person who has the verbal upper hand. But it was it was fun to fun to think about the the tension between what the characters want to say and what they can actually say, which is something that is going to plague Maya for the rest of his life. He has no hope of being able to speak naturally. Poor thing. I just want to give him a big hug. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, actually going to talk about Maya a bit more, but I was going to go into it through, um, because I just think this is a great opportunity to to talk about the thing that really, really annoys me um, about the the old guard of fantasy and the the detractors, the ones who say, you know, like, we, oh, a new book comes out and we're all celebrating how great it is to see, you know, many, many different types of people reflected in it, um, you know, and, and but they call it a diverse agenda, diversity agenda, you know, like, oh, well, this has been engineered to be specifically, um, you know, it's, it's trying to say something. Um, and I just think this is, it's so irritating to kind of, to have this, um, there is still a, a subset of people who, who seem to think that, um, you know, they call a book that is very inclusive political. They say it's a political book, but I mean, and, and that politics should does not ha- it doesn't have a place in fantasy. I just wanted to, you know, because because race and class and power struggles and um, and prejudice is a big part of the Goblin Emperor. I wondered what you your take on that is. This attitude that oh, politics should stay out of fantasy. Yeah. Um... I don't think that it's well, I think if you claim that your your fantasy is not political, you were being disingenuous because yeah. the politics in that sense is something that you, you can't pretend that one facet of your life remains pure and unviolated by the terrible, you know, greasy paws of politics when the rest of your life is saturated with it. That metaphor got a bit mixed. <laughs> but and people do say this. They say, oh, art should be above politics, or oh, which always comes out to me seeming like you shouldn't admit that half of your life is happening when, as an artist, your, your writing is informed by all of it. You can't pick and choose about what, what you get to be influenced by. I mean, you can make choices about how you, how you want to be influenced but you can't make a choice about whether that influence exists in your world or not. I mean, there, there's, and there's different ways of, of this being conveyed in your in writing as well, because certainly I have no more fondness for didactic literature than anybody else does. But at the same time, it's perfectly possible to, you know, to think about how you're being influenced and to use those influences in what you write. And I think that's a far more honest position than to pretend that that there is no influence. But it is very tricky. We we live in a 
at a moment when I think we've really become aware of how complicated identity is and how many different things actually go to make up who a person is, race and class and gender and sexual orientation and neurotypicality, all of these different factors that are all working together to form a human being. And sometimes, yeah, it does feel like it would be nice to say, oh, well, I don't want to deal with this third of human existence, so I'm going to pretend it doesn't exist. I get the temptation, but I, I don't think it's actually feasible that everything you write will be influenced by your political experiences, whether you want it to be or not. Yeah, and it's it's just one of those things that, you know, it's, it's not an individual person's fault that their sexual orientation is a political issue or has become a political issue because because of you know a group of people holding a particular opinion i think this is the the tricky thing but it's also what speculative fiction is really good for i feel like it's a a fantasy and science fiction particularly fantasy is a is a great opportunity to to take to take these issues and throw them you know into a secondary world setting and maybe kind of trick people into thinking that it isn't you know that you're not actually mm. discussing something that is really genuinely important i mean it's kind of sad that we feel like we have to do that but this is the the beauty of fantasy is is just um being able to explore issues without people um coming with them you know coming to them with preconceptions um as they might do if it was a real world debate i only mention it because i feel like um you have a um, so, so Maya's like half goblin heritage is a really big issue for him in this kind of, you know, pure blood elvish court where, you know, he looks different. You know, he he's judged for his looks, um, you know, and he people make assumptions about his intelligence and his right to you know, to rule and his fitness for ruling. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of these are, you know, coming from. A, a racial position where you know people hold specific views about race i mean was this um is this something that you went into from the very beginning like is this i mean because there are many things that set maya apart and this is just another one of them but it's a pretty big one for him and it causes him a lot of grief it does no he was always half goblin because when i started trying to set this up to get my, my victory condition, which in this case was a young person ascends to the throne with no training. I, mean, I had to go pretty far to really find reasons that that would happen. You know, why would an emperor so disdain one son that he throws him off in the middle of nowhere? What, what could possibly be, what, what, what could this child have done that was so wrong? And the answer, of course, is he didn't do anything wrong, that his father made a very stupid mistake in marrying his mother. And because he was the sort of person he was, never actually admitted it. So I knew from the beginning that he was an outcast because of his mother, because there was no other reason that a child of seven would be sent off to the middle of nowhere to grow up or, you know, not, as the case may be. But that turned out to be something that it ramified sort of endlessly because you have, okay, elves and goblins and they're not at war with each other anymore, but their two societies are, are different though 
they're related to each other. You know, how does that play out? How does that, how does the interface of the two cultures work? And sometimes it does work and sometimes it doesn't work. It was clear from very, very early on in writing this book that, yes, there was going to be a lot of thought about race involved for me and for the characters. And that's something that's that continues to be true, even though The, the Witness for the Dead is not a sequel to The Goblin Emperor. It does have many of the same concerns, and one of them is the relationships between the elves and the goblins and what happens to people who are part goblin, what happens to people who are, what kind of social barrier is that? I mean, a barrier in some places, an opening of the gates in others. You you have just perfectly kind of led us into the, my, my final question, uh, which was specifically this. It's... It, the Witness for the Dead, I'm sure, is actually on many people's most to-be-read book pile because uh, it's, you know, they, there was, the Goblin Emperor is hugely popular. Loads of, I've just seen so much love for it. It's taken me, it took me like three years to get to it, but I'm really glad I got to it. Um, and I'm super excited that there's another a book set in the same world. But I wanted to, since we have you here, um, and I'm sure loads of people will be interested in this, is what drew you back to this world and um, if you can give us a few hints about um, uh, The Witness for the Dead uh, that would be amazing. So The Witness for the Dead is Thara Kelahar who is the witness he is the witness for the dead in the Goblin Emperor and he was a character who was clearly in the middle of his own story that he his I think that was very clear for him and for a couple of other characters that his life was intersecting Maya's and that you know he was going to go on in one direction while Maya went on in, in another. And I wanted to know, I wanted to know where he was going and I wanted to find a way. And I don't think I succeeded in this, but I tried to write a high fantasy, secondary world fantasy mystery that has some of the same relationship with place that Los Angeles has in Raymond Chandler's work. So I mean, one of the things about, about Raymond Chandler's novels, and there are, I could, I could um, derail myself in several different directions here, but one of the things that I find amazing about those novels is the sense of place that they have. And I wanted to see if I could do that in a city that's entirely made up. Can I give it a sense of place and can I give, it the, give the place a sense of character? as much as Raymond Chandler did for Los Angeles. Like I said, I don't think I succeeded, but I did try. Do we get Maya cameos? Sorry, no. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I know. Um, I couldn't get Kelohar to... Kelohar is very, is, is very much not the sort of person who puts himself forward and is of the opinion that his his life can't be of any interest to the emperor which is not true but it was something that i that i couldn't i couldn't get him to write the letter he just wouldn't do it do we see any of the other characters from the goblin emperor do, they, do any of them crop up you don't need to give names you can just say yes or no i don't have spoilers <laughs> well there actually there is one but no one was ever noticed it because it's not a character who's named, but one of the couriers that Maya sees in the palace is a courier who comes to Prince Orkenis's 
Pallas and Amalo. And I know they're the same character, but otherwise you couldn't tell. But it's beautifully subtle. I like that. <laughs> well, I'm really looking forward um, to The Witness for the Dead, which is out on the 22nd of June. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, Catherine. Uh, it's been really, really fun to have you. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.